Uh, as promised, I, um, I have a startling question right out of the gate this morning. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask it, and it'll change the tone a little bit. This won't be a heavy, like, I can't breathe hour, uh, but it will be uh, an honest time uh, where we deal with the realities of our lives and where we find truth and help in God's Word. Okay? So with that, uh, here's a startling question uh, for you as we start um, our time together in God's Word. How in the face of all of the world's evil can we survive and even thrive? Those aren't just catchy words together. They're different. Surviving is just barely breathing. But how can we go, Jesus said it in John 10.10, I came to give life and abundance. How can we get there? So in the face of all the world's evils, because that's the issue, that's the challenge, how can we not only survive it, live to tell about it, but thrive in it? Am I describing something that's pie in the sky? Some would say yes, but there are many sincere people that want answers to my question. Uh, some say the answer is stay out of harm's way. That's the answer. There's evil around us. No one's denying that. But stay out of harm's way means things like uh, change it up, move. Leave Portland or Tigard or Beaverton, wherever you live. Leave the city you live in, hiding inside because it's not safe out there. My list of things that are not safe anymore in my world, it keeps growing. Okay, here's a second response, an answer that some come up with. Um, they they self-medicate. They go, this is just too much for me to take. And so they turn to a, a bottle or um, some kind of sedative that takes the edge off. I have great friends who are alcoholics. Part of their story, they've told me, is because I, I just couldn't manage the pain. I, it was evil. And I just turned to it. That's what I did. Or drugs. And there's no, no limit to that, it seems, anymore. They're now legal in the state we live in. It's, it's just... But some go there. That's their answer. Here's a third answer. Some seek solace in things like entertainment and pleasure and leisure to escape, really. I mean, it, isn't it? It's a form of escape. You sit down and watch a fantasy movie that takes you to some other land. I even do this with national parks. I think I'm sick, not of evil, but of traffic. So I, my antidote is I go to YouTube, and sometimes Debbie and I both, and we'll just go, there's no people there. You know what I mean? It's just what we do, and, it, and it's an escape. In some respects, I'm just going to open it up and say, it's a little bit of a denial. Because my reality is, uh, somebody got hit by a car and killed last year on our, 
on our, a, a street a block from our house. So we walk down that street apprehensive. A car roars and sometimes it's like, what's going on here? Going to happen again? The guy was just walking his dog. Uh, now, some are optimists. Let's just start there. Okay? Some people just bring that with them. They are optimistic people. The leave it to beaver style. You know what I'm talking? How many know that? Just to be clear, if you don't, go to Cartoon Network and you gotta you gotta do some back study, but it's worth it. Leave it to Beaver. Uh, actually, one episode long ago featured one of Beaver's friends named Richard uh, coming over to his house. As the boys were talking in Beaver's room, which they often did, sometimes just he and his brother or a friend would come over, Richard said this, Hey, Beave, I heard this word today, optimist. Do you, do you know what an optimist is? I think so. Remember Beaver, he would do that? I think so, uh, came his reply. An optimist is a guy who falls from a 90-story building and halfway down, says to himself, so far, so good. <laughs> it really was. Um, gave me a good laugh, too. Here's the problem with that. It's, it's really, the trouble is, so far lasts only so long. Then what? Uh, Billy Graham is somebody that touched a lot of our lives. Raise your hand if you can say that personally. Yeah, lots of our lives. And uh, he was um, in an interview where he revealed a very different approach to surviving, even as I'm saying this morning, thriving or celebrating life, despite the evils in his world, just like they're in our world. Once in this interview, he was asked, why, why, is he an opti- why are you an optimist, Dr. Graham? He replied, very simply, because I read the last chapter of the book. <laughs> now, a lot of you get a kick out of that like I do, because you know what he's talking about. He's referring to the Bible in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, in chapters 21 and 22 which are the most beautiful read. If you don't know anything about the Bible, go there. And you might start to see why he could smile, Dr. Graham, in the face of evil. Because he sees how things turn out. God will, according to his word, have the final victory. It's coming. I mean, you know, uh, get ready. This, This is a celebration to beat all others where a brand new, if you can picture this, imagine this, a brand new heaven and earth will be created. Why do you make something brand new, except the old is worn out? Just say it. Kick it to the curb. It doesn't work anymore. That's why I change trucks. That's why I drive a Chevy. I haven't changed one in a long time. Okay. All right, all right, all right. I'm just going to keep talking and drown out all of your cat calls right now. So there we go. Um, All right. He will. He'll create a new heaven and earth. And here's the bonus. 
He will actually be with in the midst of us who know him personally. If you don't know him personally, please reach out. I make this appeal all the time, but I'm not just talking to the camera right now. I'm talking to people in this room. You're kind of coming because you're going, this is, there's something here. The Holy Spirit's real. I'm feeling it. And what's going on? And, um, and we want to talk to you about it. Steve at gracepointfamily.com. Okay, that's enough. And I'll help you find help. And uh, would love to have coffee with you or tea. So um, my Bible is open to Acts 18 because uh, this is a sort of a ramp to our discussion in God's Word this morning. So um, in our study of the Acts of the Apostles, your Bible says, we've humbly renamed it the Acts of the Holy Spirit because throughout Acts, uh, the, books, the chapters of Acts is a continuous reference to the presence and power and influence of the Holy Spirit. So that's why the name Acts of the Holy Spirit. We left off last time here in chapter 18 as Paul was leaving the synagogue. When you hear synagogue, think Jewish people. That's their place of worship. Like ours is a church. If we're Jesus people, theirs was the synagogue. And Paul was leaving the synagogue for not so positive reasons. He was there and he encountered, verse 6 tells us, enormous resistance and abuse. Those are easy words to do two things in error about. Blow right by them and not pay attention to them. Or define them in our terms today. Paul didn't go to a psychologist. Paul was experiencing resistance. There was a full stiff arm, if you will take my image in, to Paul when he spoke in the synagogue and it was here in Corinth, which is the city that he was staying in for about, well, you'll see, for 18 months. And they not only resisted him, but they abused him. That's usually a, a shout out. That's a scoff. That's a, ah, come on. Like, like right now, imagine this moment. If I've, I've done it this week. I've imagined, what if I'm at this point in my message and somebody goes, get real, dude. I'm like, ushers, armed guards, haul that sucker out of here, okay? I don't mean that, but you know what I mean? It's like, what do I do? And if it, and if it isn't one isolated, everybody looks at him and kind of gives him the creepy stare. But if it's, a bunch of them, then verse 6 says, um, he, he left. He shook the dust off his clothes in protest and said, your blood's on your heads. I came here actually to help you. I didn't do anything to harm you. I'm innocent of everything. For now on, I'm going to go to other people, the Gentiles. So he sure enough did. This is all last week in greater detail, but he left the synagogue and went next door. He just walked next door and, and uh, there was a home church meeting and it was alive and it was a happening place. And the next verses, seven and eight, you cannot read these without a smile. When Paul left the synagogue, went next door to the house of Titius, 
Justus, a worshiper of God, and Crispus, the what? The synagogue leader. That means he's what? Jewish. That's mean, that means he came from where? Next door. It means he turned in his keys to the synagogue and went to the new church next door. Why? Because he and his entire household believed in Jesus. And notice this little footnote at the end of verse 8. Many, circle the word many, of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. That's called great results. That's something I wake up for. That's something I work hard for. That's something I'm committed to. Um, the Asbury deal that's going on. I want that here in Tigard. I want that everywhere. I, 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 why would you aim for anything less? Let's move it. Let's see that happen. Holy Spirit, it's your deal. It's not a personality. It's none of that stuff. It's, it's the living God. Is this going to happen? And if it's going to happen, it'll be because of him. Great results are, are contained in that final sentence. Many believed and many, how does the last, verse, last word in the verse? Baptized. I tease about this, but I'm not teasing at all. I, I want this tank full every Sunday of water and people. <laughs> That'd be great. No, no, we're not doing group baptisms, but you get my idea. I want one after another. You come in there and you say, I believe in Jesus. He changed my life. I went from dead to living. And I want to publicly say so. Amen? Amen. This is so true. Feel free to clap. The Holy Spirit will welcome that on your behalf. But anyway. Okay, but now that the clap's out in the open, out of nowhere, Paul receives a surprising message. And uh, I'm just going to say it's a head scratcher. It's one where you go, hold on, a ton of people, many, just believed and were baptized and then, verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Three commands there. For I am with you. There's a reason behind those words. I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in that city, in Corinth. That's the end of the quote. Um, so 18 months pass. See how verse 11 reads. He went, well, okay. No one's going to mess with me. Um, I'm going to stay here in Corinth for a year and a half, and I'm going to do exactly what I've been doing up to this point. I'm going to teach the Word of God. And he did. Uh, verse 12 is hard to... Read after that. It's a stinker. While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, he was a he was a he was a Roman leader. The Jews here in Corinth. We just I'm reading it slow so you can take it in. 
They made a united pack to attack Paul. That means they conspired. They got together and said, yeah, you don't like what you're hearing? No, neither, neither do I. Let's get him. Let's get rid of him. And their intent is mentioned here by Luke to attack Paul. And they did so by force, bringing, when it, when it reads, you, they brought him to the place of judgment, the Bema seat. It's where you're going to stand trial. Fingers will be pointed. Accusations will be made. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now I want to, because the rest of it, I guess for uh, accuracy's sake, let me read on. Just as Paul was about to speak, to stand up and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me explain. Galileo says, hold on, hold up everyone. If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime here in Corinth, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you and adjudicate this matter. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. Remember, he's Roman. He's not a Jew. He's not a Gentile. Well, he is a Gentile, but he doesn't care about religious stuff. I will not be a judge of such things, he says at the end of verse 15. So he drove them off. That's a word of saying, get out of here. Quit bugging me. I'm going to turn on you in a minute if you don't. Then the crowd turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader. And uh, he, by the way, is the replacement of Crispus. Sosthenes, timing is bad. They had to vent their anger somehow, so they turn on him and beat the crud out of him in front of everybody. Galileo, meanwhile, is going, not my problem. Drag out his body when it's over. That's how indifferent this was to him. This scene presents a principle I want us to talk about for the balance of our time this morning. When pressure mounts, think the Apostle Paul, he's seeing things happen, many are believing and being baptized, and it's cool. And, and then this. Yeah, he didn't get beat up, but boy, there was a conspiracy to do more than that, to attack him, to ultimately kill him, hopefully have the, the, the force of law behind them. They didn't expect the re reaction that they got. When pressure mounts, remember, remember, remember that God is present. Let's talk a little bit about this sensitive topic this morning, trauma. Um, many of us can tell stories from our own first-person singular purview of uh, trouble even trauma. And before I go further, let's define trauma, okay? I'm not a psychologist, but I've consulted with them. Uh, I'm a pastor and a theologian. Uh, I have Google, <laughs> which helps a little bit and doesn't help in other ways. Here's a good definition. It's my definition. It really is. 
any kind of mistreatment in your past, you can get this later, but any kind of mistreatment in your past that continues to cause you pain in the present. That is a definition most people, based on those words, any pain that was caused in your past is affecting you now with pain. Let's just give that the label trauma. Okay? Just stay with me. Don't don't quibble over details at this point. By that definition, I'm guessing that most people in hearing me now in the house and in your house, have experienced trauma, some form of trauma. I I started to make a list and then it just got huge. It's a horrific car crash. You were in it or somebody you love was in it and you got the news. Um, A failed marriage. You don't have a ring anymore and what's behind that, what I just said, is terrible trauma in your life. Uh, A terrible diagnosis. You're walking along, minding your own business, life's good, got it by the tail, living the dream, baby. I know a man that retired. One month later, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and I buried him like six months later. Family was deeply impacted by their loss. He had all kinds of dreams. Here's one, financial collapse. I don't know of a single person that went, you know, I'm going to make some dumb decisions and live on the street. (laughs) But they do. And this collapse is trauma. Uh, Probably the the most difficult and ingrained one of all I can think of. We sometimes use labels emotional and and spiritual trauma, some churches abuse. If, if you've ever been abused by something said here, please come talk to me. But I want to start with saying I'm sorry. I don't, that's not my heart in any way. So, I mean that. But, but the other kind is physical. Physical trauma. Something's happened to you, and it's left you rattled. I want you to just think right now, rather than more particulars, think of just the daily headlines happening to you. That's all you have to do. When I, when I read a headline or hear a story, I don't watch the news anymore, but when I hear a story, I just think, oh, that dear person, they are scarred by what I'm hearing right now. So it's real. Um, and even though you lived through it, it left a mark. It didn't. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. It left a mark on you, and it left you apprehensive. If you were, if you were not affected by it, you just roll along and go, what? I, I, I etch a sketch that out of my life along. That's not part of me anymore. But I know more than a few people who wonder, when will it happen again? Who actually have the, the flinch factor. Okay? They get jumpy. Not because they're weird, but because it, it's, a, it's an event. It's a, uh, it's a past trauma that's affecting them now. 
Okay. Our Bible tells us that Paul had plenty of past traumas. Plenty of them. I want you quickly to take in your Bible and go back, back up the bus to chapter 9, just very quickly. Verse 23, he has just met Jesus on the way to Damascus, and we come to verse 23. I mean, Paul, he was Saul in that day. He had just met Jesus, and after many days had gone by, look how verse 23 of chapter 9 describes what he faced. There was a conspiracy among the Jews to do what? Kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. If you're the person they're trying to kill, it's saying you learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. I have always looked at those words and gone, well, that is a cool escape that would scar a human being. You are running for your life. That's the first, okay? You don't have to turn forward very long to chapter 13. Go there to chapter 13, and here's a second verse. We've covered all these in detail already when we studied this. But verse 45, when the Jews saw that the crowds, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. The crowds were there to listen to to Paul. They were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what Paul was saying and there's those words again, heaped abuse on him. Heaped it. Okay. Stay in chapter 13. Flip over to verse 50, just like five verses later. Verse 50, when the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. They kicked them out of town. You're not welcome here, was their message. I wish I could say we're done, but the worst is yet to come. Look at chapter 16, just two pages later in my Bible. Chapter 16, look at verse 19. Uh, He had just delivered a young demon-possessed girl. Uh, There was no demon in her left. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, she was trafficked by these owners, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into a marketplace to face the authorities. Seized to be seized? They get you. They drag you against your will. He didn't just go, hey, hey, man, man, go easy on me, man. I'm with you all the way. No. They dragged him before the magistrates, and then they said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack. If you thought you had an ally, you you thought wrong. You're alone. And the the attack just intensified. And then look what they did. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and in the inner cell, and we know how the rest goes. It's it's incredible stuff. So go forward one more uh, uh, chapter, verse 
uh, chapter 17, verse 5. When other Jews were jealous, they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. And their purpose was to hunt down Paul. There's a, he's a, have you ever been the object of a manhunt? That you didn't deserve? They're just coming after you. That's what's going on for him and Silas here. And it's a riotous mob. So imagine now, back to chapter 18, the trauma trigger of the words we just read in verse 12 and 13. United attack on Paul, and they drug him in to face judgment. You hearing me now? A, a trauma trigger moment for Paul. He must have thought, here we go again, he knew chapter 9 firsthand. He knew chapter 13. He knew chapter 15. He knew chapter 16 and 17. He must have thought, okay, here we go again. I'm guessing he, he might have wondered, given all that background we just covered, will, will I be chastised? Or, or will it result in imprisonment? Or even execution? Where's this going? If you're in the moment with him, you start to realize trauma through the eyes of Paul. You see, past traumas, it's my deeply, I believe this, it, clinically, I believe this experientially, I see it empirically all the time. It has a long shelf life. Uh, and it surfaces when Certain triggers happen. You weren't expecting it. It just happened and suddenly you're shaking. Um, and you tend to, in those moments, call up um, painful moments that pour out of you and they, they, you look at this. It's almost a shock to you when you see it happen in you. There's, there's buried bitterness that pours out. There's, at times, raw resentment. Uh, there was a pastor in mid-century, last, uh, last century, Harry Emerson Fosdick, an American pastor, and um, he described in one sentence the corrosive effect of untreated trauma. Untreated trauma that it can have on people. He said this, resentment is where you burn down your own house to kill a rat. It's like sh shooting a mosquito with a cannon. But I don't like rats. I, I read that and I thought, ah, I don't like anything about rats. I, I, um, they have no value to me. I, in fact, I, I think I know why. When God made rats, he made rats. Okay, let's establish that. When he made rats, he went, oh, rats. <laughs> the guy revved his engine right, right as I said that outside. That's good. Um, but it's true. I don't want to be anywhere near rats. I don't, I don't, I don't. I've done, I, I would shock you if I told you the things I've done to dispatch rats. Dispatch is... Um, a PG-13 version of what I've done to them. Um, and I do so because they're stubborn and resilient pests. Um, 
And trauma is just like that. Someone hurts you. I know I'm being right out in front today, and you hate them for it. They hurt you, you hate them, and then bitterness finds a place to live. In some cases thrive where it doesn't belong. Hebrews says a root of bitterness can actually cost us eternity. Um, our Bibles tell the story of a very traumatized teenager. I want to close with his story and then a very true recent story. Um, his name was Joseph, this teenager. And uh, his story covers the last 14 chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. He was uh, 17 when the bottom fell out of his life. 17, teenager, when trauma first visited him. And it stayed with him until he was 30. It's a long time. I don't care what your trauma is. That's a, that's a long haul. His suffering included uh, a whole list of things you need to read in detail. It's in your notes, but he was betrayed by his brothers. He was actually trafficked. He was sold as a slave and slandered and wrongly accused and falsely imprisoned and probably worst of all in that long list, forgotten. Totally forgotten. Who knew he was there? Put an asterisk next to that. It's coming up. Uh, he did he, All that happened to him, yet there is not a shred of evidence that he became bitter. The rats had no way with him. Not a shred of it. How do you do that? Many people want to know. Uh, in, in his own words, at the end of his story, chapter 50, he reveals his answer. I want you to listen for his survival secret, is what I call it. It's chapter 50, and uh, it's a larger passage there, but in the heart of it, he shares how he was able to survive, and he's telling his brothers, who are still shocked at how this thing's turning out. He said this, what you did to me was meant to bring upon me traumatic evil. But God meant it for good. He was honest. What you did to me was meant to train wreck me, sink my ship, whatever metaphor you want. But God meant it for good. All right, I came across words that point to his, I'm going to call it trauma recovery strategy. Because he was traumatized and he recovered. Clearly, you can read it in his own words. Hope you do. And I think it'll work for anyone wanting relief, hearing my words today, and recovery from trauma. Okay? Here's these words. We may not deserve to be mistreated. 
I'm going to say we really don't deserve to be mistreated. I'm quoting them. We may not deserve to be mistreated, and our offender or offenders may not deserve to be forgiven. I don't back away from that at all. But when we forgive, we overcome the other person's sin against us with the grace of God. In Joseph's autobiography, we find that to be his fix for trauma. And when we, when we live out grace and forgiveness, it's been my observation, it doesn't happen in most cases like a snap of the fingers or a flip of a light switch, but trauma triggers eventually lose their power. They stop harassing and inflicting in injury. Um, so I, I need to just tell you this because next Sunday you'll be lost if I don't. Um, having persevered here in Acts 18, despite the trauma, trauma trigger, I think, that was very much in play of the opposition and abuse that we've read already in verse 6 and 12 and 13. Luke then says, all right, he notes Paul stayed in the city some time until it was time for him to turn for home. And he did. Verse 18 says he stayed in Corinth for some time. He left then with the brothers and sisters. Uh, he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria. He's heading now east across the Mediterranean. Accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, we met them recently. Beautiful people. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off in Centuria because of a vow he had taken. It's a really cool vow. There's lots more to say about it, but he, uh, it's a vow of commitment. It's a vow that says, I'm all in for you, God. And he never cut his hair during the keeping of that vow. Then they arrived in Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, the couple that meant so much to him. And he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. You don't do that if you're still packing trauma. You don't. When they asked him to spend more time with him, I love his response. I want it to be my response. He declined, but as he left, he, see these words? Verse 21, promised, I will come back if, God, if it's God's will. I want that to be all of us. Say, yes, I'll be there if, if God permits or allows or directs. When he left, when he landed at Centuria, he went up to Jerusalem. So he's now all the way back to Israel on the western shore of Israel in uh, Caesarea. I said Centuria, Caesarea. And he went up to Jerusalem and then greeted the brothers and then took off and went north to Antioch, Syria, which was his starting point, his home church. By the way, verse 23 begins his third missions trip. So there's nothing in between that's recorded. He ends up there, and he heads back out on his third missions trip. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to close now with uh, the telling of an important um, story that impacted me when I read it. 
And it's a true story. Um, <clears throat> and it was inspired by trying to find a modern version in my mind of what I hopefully have captured for you here in Paul's experience again and again and again. And I think I've found that. Um, I, I think it's the takeaway. So if you want to write this down, it's really a simple takeaway, but I think it'll become powerful as you ponder it, okay? So I think it's the takeaway of this message today where I promised, I, I didn't really promise, but I titled my message, Triumphing Over Trauma, all right? And I've already hopefully given you enough honesty to say it's not going to flip a switch or snap your fingers, but you can overcome. Amen? Amen. You, you can overcome. And here's the takeaway, okay? Ready to write this down? God is in control. Say it with me, people. God is in control, okay? I want you to personalize it right now. You don't have to say it out loud. Personalize it with the trauma memory you have right now. You've had it all morning. God is in control. A whole nother ser a sermon, at least maybe a series, if you don't buy that. If you think God was on vacation when the trauma happened to you, that's a problem. You won't find healing with that answer. You won't. If you think God was like, ah, that's a big one, I can't help with that. No, that's not. Don't, don't try to get God off the hook. When we say those kinds of things, we're kind of saying, you know, I haven't come up with a good answer, and so basically God's not powerful enough, or God doesn't care enough, or God's on vacation, or something, something that doesn't work. It leaves you stuck still. So God is in control. Neither Paul nor Joseph um, had it easy. But both faced enough tra trauma, I think. We th wouldn't you agree to take them out? How do I ever recover from that? But neither capitulated. Neither did. How do you explain that? Paul had words for it, right? It's down in your notes. Romans 8, 28 are his words. In all things, God works together for the good. All the stuff that he wrote about in 2 Corinthians 11, all of those traumas, God works together for the good. That means God is somehow present in the trauma. I know I'm close to the edge right now when I say that. But that's what Paul is saying. In Romans 8, 28. And here's another thing that Joseph said in chapter 45. You've got to read it because he says nine times, five that I could see explicitly, it was God who brought me here. You don't say that. Chapter 45 is near the end of his autobiography. You don't say that unless you believe that back when you were 17 and got the shaft, that God was present there. And, and here you are, one of the leaders of Egypt, helping your very Jewish people survive the drought. 
You come to that place because you believe, as he did, God was present. Your actions were bad and evil and dark, but God was the one who brought this about for his glory and for my good and gain. That is the story of Joseph. Anything less than that, I think we compromise difficult truth. And I need to apologize before I read this last story right now. Um, there really does need to be a, a feedback time in a message like this. Because you might be just this side of screaming right now. I don't know. And I, and I apologize again. But I want you to know something. My door is open all the time. And I would love to help you take next steps like Paul took, like Joseph took, like I've taken. Flinch factors happen to pastors too. Okay. I conclude with a question for you and then this story. Do you believe God is in control? Though you've gone through or are going through, I conclude with the story of Clarence Jordan. I've never met the man. He was a Jesus lover who had a heart to help poor people in the deep south last century. Uh, He had two PhDs. They come into play in this story. One in agriculture and one in New Testament Greek. (laughs) Go figure, right? That's a... So he started a farm to teach poor people in the day, mostly black people, how to be more effective farmers and receive more gain for their hard work. It's an it's a admirable ambition. Uh, he, he encountered, however, great resistance and opposition, and as you'll hear, even abuse, trauma. He was cursed and spat upon by people in the town that he lived in and this farm was. The tires of his pickup were slashed repeatedly. The produce from the farm, and it was bountiful, was boycotted by people they had hoped to sell it to. One night in 1954, the KKK posse arrived at the farm. Hooded men erected a burning cross in the middle of the yard, then torched the sheds, barns, and riddled Jordan's home with bullets while he huddled on the floor. He recognized many of the Klansmen voices. I was tempted to take this sentence out, but it's part of the story. Some were members of the church Jordan attended in town. The next morning, Jordan arose early, went to his field and surveyed the damage from the night before. All the tender young shoots of spring planting had been trampled. With a whispered prayer, Jordan lifted his hoe, bent his back, 
and began to plant. He was beginning again. While he worked, a car pulled up and a man from the local newspaper got out and walked over, grinning. Jordan acknowledged the man's presence and then went back to his labor. He had heard the newspaper man's voice during the Klan raid as well, the night before. The man looked around at the burnt buildings and trampled crops, then said, Well, you've got your two PhDs and you've been here now for 14 years. All you got to show for it is a few piles of ashes with a six mile. Just how successful do you think you've been, Mr. Jordan? Jordan looked up from hoeing and then answered about as successful as the cross of Jesus. And then he went back to work. I'd like you to bow your heads with me this morning. No one has ever been more traumatized than Jesus Christ. No one. There's a reason we have a cross on the table with communion features on both sides. The cross is truly a silent testament to that fact. But he never though the most traumatized human ever, he never once went dark when faced with his trauma. Never. Instead, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness because, after all, by his wounds we have been healed. And Jesus shared his secret. Father, forgive them. Forgive those that have inflicted trauma on me. 